I grew up Southern Baptist. I was homeschooled. I didn't listen to any secular music, you know, like air quotes around secular. I was in church probably more than the pastor's kids, to be honest. I got saved, again with air quotes, at least a dozen times. And so that was the story of faith that I was handed. And I am a perfectionist and I'm a people pleaser and like all of these character traits that just made that system of religion and of faith so appealing. Like, oh, I can just master this. I can stick the landing and then I'm good. And and the rules are very clear until they're not. And the expectations are really clear until you ask questions about them. And so it worked for about 20 years of my life. That was Megan Westra, author of the brand new book called Born Again and Again. She has an MDiv. She is the host of a great podcast called The Podluck. And she is does one of my favorite things. She asks lots and lots of questions. And I really like the way she thinks. Uh, I think she's going to be super helpful for lots and lots of people. So uh, enjoy the conversation and then go out and buy her book. Megan, how are you? So good to see you and have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super glad to be here. Well, I've been following you on Twitter for a while, and you're funny and interesting and sassy sometimes, and I like I like all those things. Um, and then I found out you were writing this book, Born Again and Again, and it looks right up my alley, and uh, so I'm thrilled to sit down and talk to you about that and about life. So first question, though, um, how has the writing process been for you? So, so I have wanted to write a book since I was in undergrad. I think I found like some like ambiguous angsty Facebook status from like the early 2000s <laughs> as one did back in the day. Right. Yep. And I was like, all I want to do is like go to Portland and sit in a rainy coffee shop and write. And I was like, oh, my gosh, first of all, gross. Like who was I when I was 19? Uh, No shade on Portland, but, but also just like, I had such a romanticized view of what writing was. I'm just like, yeah, you go sit in a coffee shop and you drink espresso straight from the the shop bar. And (laughs) you just put your mouth underneath the spouts and just go, go. Right, right. Right. It works best when it's kind of overcast and rainy and, and it's just not, it, yeah. that was not my writing experience. Um, so writing a book is impossible and worth it. Well I have likened it so many times to, to giving birth. Like I have, I have one child and it, it was like labor. It was like labor. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. You think you can't do it until it's done. And there's so many times throughout the whole process where I was like, I'm just going to have to email my editor and say, I'm so sorry, but I actually don't know anything that you have <laughs> contracted me to write about. 
yes. but, but it's done. <laughs> yeah, way to go. And that's that's just such a great feeling when, you know, you get that final green light from the editor and, and it goes into copy edit and even when that gets done. And, and then comes the beautiful, glorious time where you beg people to spend like $8.99 on your glorious child, you know, and they yeah. won't. And you're like, no, really, just... It's just, just take a shot. I mean, it's $8.99. Anyway, right, right. yeah. Yes, yes. And then there was the the very conflicted feeling that I was not prepared for when a couple of people who had advanced copies were like, this was so good. I couldn't put it down. I read it all in a day, which as an avid reader, I know that feeling, right? Like that is mm -hmm. one of the best feelings in the world when you just mm -hmm. get sucked in and you can't put it down. And so there was part of me that I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so honored and humbled that my writing was that for you. And then there was this other part of me that was like, what the heck? I yeah. spent 18 months of my life like, yeah. agonizing over those words and you just read them in eight hours. Uh, so I wasn't prepared for that to be as conflictual as it was for me anyway. Yeah, I like, no, I get Could you take I, some more time with it? <laughs> I totally get what you're saying. You're like, that's such an honor and that's what you want. And also, come on, you, you like, you know, give me some like, oh, just every word I had to stop because it was so good. You know, like that's also good. Oh, my God. Like a holiday meal. You don't want yes. people to just be like, oh, my gosh, I just ate all the food in 10 minutes. And yeah. It was so good. It was so satisfying. I'm going to be like, I, I cooked all day. Could you take <laughs> could you take a little bit longer? Take a minute. Well, I have to admit, as I was reading the first chapter of the intro man it was like it, it was it was hard to read because so much of it i remember from my own past yeah. and uh, i mean i'm almost 50 so maybe a little different in terms of some of the things but geez you know when did you get saved and it was it was almost like uh, i felt some post-traumatic feelings as i was reading through some of that yeah. stuff because it really is such a unique culture this evangelical conversion, you know, get people to pray the prayer and rededicate their lives afterwards at camp or wherever. And so um, tell us a little bit about, you know, just the thumbnail sketch of those growing up years. And some, I mean, you walk through the chapters sort of of your life so eloquently with Campus Crusade and stuff and, and, um, but, but walk us through sort of your, your growing up years and, and what your culture was like. Yeah, I like to tell people, imagine the most stereotypical evangelical kid in the 90s and early 2000s. And I was probably pretty close to that. I grew up Southern Baptist. I was homeschooled. I didn't listen to any secular music, you know, like air quotes around secular. Yes. I was in church probably more than the pastor's kids, to be honest. You know, I was constantly doing things, volunteering in youth group, teaching Sunday school in high school. I got saved, again, with air quotes, at least a dozen times. I talk about that in that first chapter of like all these, all the times where I just had panic around the altar call. And so that was the story of faith that I was handed. And I I'm a perfectionist and I'm a people pleaser and like all of these character traits that just made 
that system of religion and of faith is so appealing. Like, oh, I can just master this. I can stick the landing and then I'm good. And, and the rules are very clear until they're not. And the expectations are really clear until you ask questions about them. And so it worked for about 20 years of my life. And then I started to encounter either people who had different backgrounds than I did, whether that was racial or socioeconomic. I've encountered people who had things happen in their lives that couldn't be answered by any of the formulas that I was handed, right? Where it was just like, well, no, but you're a good person and you worked hard and you go to church and you memorize these Bible verses, your life should be good. And it's not. And I don't know how to make sense of that. And so the book really came out of this space of me looking back and saying, okay, in the last 12 to 15 years of my life, how have I learned to hold this faith in a different way? And kind of what was that? What were the things? What were the watershed moments, right? Because it's never just one moment where there's like the straw that breaks the camel camel's back. It's, it's all the straws. And as you start to look back, you're like, oh, that was a lot of straw. Yeah. And so I tried to to kind of pull those things together because it is, to your point, it, it is such a niche culture, but it's one that has done so much harm and has left so many people with such angst. And I think in this particular moment, you know, 2016 was certainly one moment where you had a lot of people kind of blinking their eyes a little bit dazed and like, wait a minute, this, this isn't what I thought it was. And, and I think again, kind of coming into this summer and with George Floyd's murder, you kind of had another wave of that I, from what I could see with people around me or people that I grew up with, just the sheer number of like direct messages I got from people who are like, Hey, uh, so I've been like lurking on your Facebook for the past decade and you probably don't remember me, but thanks for doing what you do because it's really helping me right now. Yeah. And yeah. So just, uh, I want to, I want the book to be a place where like when you're kind of like blinking and, and you're, you're dazzled and you're like, I don't even know where to start to just be like a foothold to be like, okay, what about here? Mm-hmm. We can start here. What were some of the questions, Megan, that, I mean, I'm sort of rewinding the tape a little bit, but what were some of the questions that made you stop, um, you know, 20 years in that made you say, wow, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah, I worked at a nonprofit all through college, like a good Christian kid would. Uh, Again, just keeping in line with the stereotype, I started working at an after-school program Mm -hmm. and tutoring kids. And that was really the first thing that stopped me in my tracks because so many of them were living in intergenerational homes. Um, They had, you know, grandmas or, or older aunts that were deeply involved in their lives and who were providing a lot of care. And they were all, these older women were all deeply religious, like deep women of faith who were at church all the time, who were constantly praying and like, not just like casual prayer, but like deep, profound, like from your guts kind of prayers. And so many of the kids that I was working with also were living without running water. I was in the coal fields of West Virginia. So they, didn't have running water or they didn't have electricity or they 
were really struggling with uh, financial provision and food insecurity and things like that. And it really stopped me in my tracks because I had lived in that community my whole life. And I had a narrative about those people Mm. that I had been given that said like, well, they just aren't very moral, right? Like they, they're immoral or they don't work hard enough or they, you know, if they just cared. And as I got to know the students and then as I got to know their families, I was like, well, that's just not true. Like it's just a lie. Yeah. And so that was the first question that then started to, to lead me to pull on all the other things. Cause you can never just pull one thread, right? If you start to pull a thread, especially with like evangelical Christianity, you start to pull one thread and then you realize there's this enormous hairball Mm -hmm. that all the threads are connected to. And, and so that was the first question that led to so many other questions. Well, it's interesting you bring up morality too, because you know what, and lack of work ethic or something like that as reasons why, well, someone can be saved, quote unquote, but not experiencing a robust life. It's because they're immoral. And, and it just makes me, makes me remember how much morality or the, the, and of course that's a ever shifting sands, but morality Mm. was just the guideposts that you had to constantly live up to or um, judge people against. And, And again, it was morality based on your view of what you thought the Bible said, which I remember having that. It's not just what you thought the Bible said, it's what the Bible said. Period. Right. 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 You know, yes. no, no conversation. And right. so that's, that's, I, I'm just reflecting. It's just interesting that like judgment on someone's morality is one of the first things that you say, well, okay, yeah, they may be in church a lot, but they're, it's not the right church or they're, they're not living the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Gosh. Okay. And so, and so you, did you have people in your life, Megan, did you have a mentor or friends that you could be safe with to start to poke the bear? Yeah, I had my boss at the after school program, uh, both the one immediately above me, who's the program supervisor, and then the, the kind of like second in command of the nonprofit were both so gracious and really mentored me in a lot of ways. And so I... I certainly look back on those days now and I'm like, wow, like Ami and Vicky fielded so many questions that were probably just left them at the end of the day being like, oh my gosh. And like that, you know, when you need your forehead and, um, so they were super helpful, informative along the way of just catching a lot of crap that I was just flinging out there and trying to make sense of. And then I also had a professor, I went to a Christian college again. I am a stereotype. And so I went to Christian college and I had a professor, he taught philosophy and theology, and I was required to take two Christian studies courses at my Christian college. I was a exercise sports science major. So I wasn't trying to, uh, to think about theology, but I had to take a couple classes and the professor saw something 
in, in the questions I was asking and just kept like handing me books and just hmm. kept like, like breadcrumbing the trail, right? Where he was just like, I heard this question you asked about how the church should be caring more about some of the students that you tutor at the nonprofit. Here's this article by James Cohn. Wow. How about you just read that? Mm-hmm. And and looking back, I was like, wow, that was kind of a a risky move for my professor at this small Baptist school in Virginia to be like, I'm just going to slip you this. Um, but it was <laughs> it was super formative. It's totally risky, but you know, as I think about it, like Megan, if you were a prof at a at a small Christian college, my guess is you would get so sick of the bullshit answers that, you know, 95% of the good Christian kids fed back oh, to gosh, you. Yeah. Or even like, you know, if you tried to poke the bear a little bit as a prof, some of the, you know, urgent 19-year-old rebuffs that you mm. would get, you know, mm. as a prof. So you would probably be like on the high lookout for curious students and it would probably be so delicious to come across you you know when (laughs) right like so i bet Mm -hmm. i bet these conservative christian schools are full of these covert profs that are just waiting for students that are curious and starting to deconstruct you know what i mean like so i bet i bet that was so fun for that prof in a way i wonder yeah. I wonder. Sorry for interrupting you. I just um, okay, so um, so you're you're in college, you're you're asking questions, people are feeding you things. Um, was there a time when it just all broke apart? Or did you sort of you know, reconstruct the car while it was still moving and and find a way to sort of keep your faith but just change it? I think I definitely reconstructed the car while it was still moving. I don't stop very well in any aspect (laughs) of life. I'm just real bad at that. And so I I always want to keep it moving. And uh, yeah, so it it was definitely just like a, an ongoing process. Uh, That's why like in, in the title of the book or the subtitle Jesus is called at one point the word ongoing was in the subtitle I'm yeah. like looking at the cover and I'm like it's not anymore never mind <laughs> forget everything I just said all the iterations but, right right but I really wanted to drive that home of I I feel pretty solid in most most aspects of my faith right now and I am fully aware that there are things that I don't even know what questions to ask yet yeah so at some point there will be another iteration. There will be another thing that I'm wrestling through. And so I don't know if there was really like a singular moment that I felt like everything like really broke. Probably the the trigger for the the most deconstruction was was when I did become a mom. Um, yeah. I gave birth to my daughter the same year that Rachel Held Evans was writing A Year of Biblical Womanhood Mm. Um, and the same year that um, Nick Kristoff and Cheryl Wu Dunn did the Half the Sky documentary. And so it was just this, like, the stars aligning everything, pointing to, hey, you need to ask some bigger questions about your reality. And, And I was willing to do it because I had this tiny infant girl 
And I had no idea what I was going to tell her, what story of faith I was going to pass to her, but I knew there was no way in hell I was giving her the story that I was given. Mm -hmm. I knew that there was no way I was going to do the same purity culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, your greatest calling is to be a wife and a mom and you Mm. need to learn to submit and be Mm. small and be quiet. I Mm. knew there was no way that I was going to give her that. Right because of all the harm that it had caused me. And so that really broke a lot more things open because I started reading Rachel's work, which then meant I was introduced to so many other voices because she was so good at that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, so that was probably the when like the, the fire hose went from like this like trickle mm-hmm. to like whoosh, <laughs> but but then it was a matter then of like, I, at that point I was on staff with a church. I was doing children's ministry because I was a woman called to ministry. And so that's mm-hmm. what we did. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was like, well, I got to keep it moving. I have kids who are going to ask questions on Sunday and it really shaped how I approached the work that I was doing at that point. Cause I was less concerned with making sure the kids had an answer and more concerned with making sure they knew their question was good. That's great. And, and that that was a question lots of people had, and it was a question that people have been debating for thousands of years. And so how cool that you get to ask it now too. Mm-hmm. That's um, awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Um, well, so I want to get into a little, uh, uh, some of your book is construct or, or remembering how evangelicalism came into being. And I know that's like the subject of so much history, but, but how do you explain to people who, um, like in your book and just even in conversation that this, this thing that feels like such a bedrock is relatively new and where it came from and all that stuff. How, how do you go about explaining that? Yeah, so I think that knowing the history and where evangelicalism comes from is so important. Because like you were saying, it is such a bedrock. And so when people start to question or when people start to just notice that things aren't lining up, it, it doesn't feel like you're questioning a iteration of a movement or a culture. You, you feel like you're questioning God, yeah. which is so existential. And, and so to be able to pull back and say instead, no, 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 like this is a hundred years old max. Mm-hmm. You can totally question this is, is so important. And so uh, there, there's a reason I chunk the history out in each chapter. Uh, part of that is because my editor said if I did it all in one chapter, people would get bored and stop reading. But also because people will connect more with a p- particular issue or a particular concern, right? And when we think about how do most people start to deconstruct their faith or ask questions or uh, have doubts or whatever, usually it's around an event or a relationship or a particular thing that, that breaks their heart, that, that yeah. breaks through, right? And so to be able to kind of pull back and with all of these different kind of hot button issue say like this is where that comes from Uh, this is kind of where that started and and I do a like it's it still is like a 10,000 foot level view of the history uh, because there have been entire books written on on all of the things that I talk about in in each chapter of my book so 
if I'm just talking to somebody, I usually will, will kind of try to like pick up on like, okay, where, where are you at? What is flagging this for you? Like, why are you asking this question? And then start to really focus on, on that aspect of the history. I mean, so much of it goes back to honestly, like the reconstruction era after the civil war. Yep. And there's so much that happened kind of between those years and the end of World War One that just continues to be so formative, you know, where you see the emergence of dispensationalist eschatologies where it's like, well, Jesus is going to come and rapture us. And so we're just going to get out of this. Mm-hmm. You know, the world is going to continue to get worse and worse and worse and worse, but we're going to be snatched up to heaven uh, where our souls We'll live for eternity and our bodies just, you know, who cares? Um, So that's where you start to see those theologies emerge. You start to see a lot of reaction uh, with the New Deal and the passage of the New Deal and a lot of fear being intentionally stoked. Uh, People hiring preachers, businesses hiring preachers to stoke fears in their congregations of, of what these social safety nets will do to the church. Uh, and so when you start to like look back at, at some of that stuff, that's it's usually where everything ends up is, is either in that reaction to the new deal or, or things that were emerging in the reconstruction era. But I, I usually will, will kind of choose the path to get back there based on, on what the person I'm talking to is is most open to exploring. Do you um, think it, um, the the fear stoking is a response to um, the the fear of loss of power for Christians? You know, like n- not that Christians are ever really, I mean, you know, in power in a in a um, like political way. I mean, even though they are, but I was going to say, arguably we are in the United States. We are a form of it anyway. Um, Let me ask my question in a way that makes sense. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? Why do you think fear was such a, such a good weapon that was really used so well? Um, What were, what were Christians afraid of that they had to like counter stroke the fear Mm -hmm. i think there were a few things going on and in some ways the current moment that we're living in mimics it in a lot of ways you know both with world war one and then the great depression you had an unprecedented event and a world altering life altering reality you know prior to world war one the prevailing opinion about uh, eschatology or like, you know, what happens with the end times was not like any kind of like left behind, you know, the antichrist will rise. That, that wasn't the prevailing opinion. It existed, but it was a fringe belief that most people were like, eh, this is, this is loopy. Like this is not worth your time. And then you had this enormous, hellish war that made everybody stop and say oh 
maybe the world isn't just going to continue to get better and better and better until Jesus comes back. Maybe we can't bring about the kingdom of God by loving our neighbors and seeking the right thing in our own communities. Right. And, and I, again, I'm, I'm glossing, right. Like there were a lot of various opinions there, but I think that you had all of a sudden, again, kind of similar to, to what we have right now happening. We don't have an answer for why this is happening. We don't have an answer for suffering. There seems to be, there is no rhyme or reason as to who suffers or why. And so people try to make meaning. We try to find meaning in those in those times because it is terrifying mm-hmm. to just say that suffering is part of life and there's nothing that you can do that will prevent you from encountering it. There's yeah. no formula. And so just like right now, you have all these conspiracy theories that are being propagated in a lot of evangelical circles. You started to have uh, fear-based theologies and fear-based approaches to like, here, if you pray this prayer, mm-hmm. eternally you're secure. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what happens to your family or your body or your home or your neighbor or whatever, because your soul is all that matters. And if you just do this thing the one time, it doesn't matter what you do for the rest of your life, you're good. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's oddly comforting in the face of a lot of unknowns. It's toxic. Yeah. And it's not faithful to the witness of scripture, but it is comforting. Yeah, I think when when the chips are down and we're afraid, we can lean on certainty, even if certainty, um, you know, it doesn't even if even if the answers aren't really all that satisfying, if you think about them yeah. for five minutes, you know, yeah. um, the illusion of certainty really, really is compelling. Um, yeah in the face of confusion and in the face of the alternative is, Oh, maybe this, maybe this life is really, really hard. And then we die. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And certainly there's more meaning to that, to, 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 to life than that. But I think to your point, I'm, I, it's, it's, it's startling how quickly a theology can spring up out mm-hmm. of um, a certain moment in time. Right. Mm-hmm. And to that, like yeah. Megan, and- no, go ahead. Go ahead. And when we decide that Jesus is, he always wins, right? Like Jesus right. is always the triumphant. He's always resurrected and never crucified. Right. Uh, he lives in my heart and he's there to make sure that I, you know, feel good and am having a good life and that I feel comfort and never challenge. Uh, then that distorts Jesus. And and it does mean that life is hard and then we die is awful news, that that's terrible. But if we go back to Jesus is God with us and Jesus suffers and Jesus bleeds and Jesus moves toward the sick and the outcast and Jesus sees the people that are forgotten and Jesus sees the people who are in power mm-hmm. and who are respected, which is annoying. <laughs> and Jesus constantly moves toward. And instead of Jesus always being the winner, Jesus is always with us, even if we're, quote, like losing. Even yeah. if we are, you know, 
on the outskirts, downtrodden. Yeah. Or if we're the tax collector who climbed up the tree, the right. Jesus is with us. But that Jesus doesn't fit in your heart. <laughs> See, now you're preaching. I love it. <laughs> like you've 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 held on to yeah. to or maybe help, holding us not the right word or right phrase but you've you're, you're it's passionate. fine i'm real stubborn i'm cool with being the, <laughs> no, the but you're very passionate on. about this this jesus who doesn't fit in your heart and so i'm just mm-hmm. i'm just very curious about people who um don't become overly cynical of course we all have to you know, have some cynicism to even keep moving day by day. Yep. Um, what has stoked that passion uh, and hope for you? Uh, well, like I kind of said in passing, I'm hella stubborn. Yeah. Um, I, I think that I have had enough weird moments in my life that I can't explain in any other way than it was the presence of the Lord with me mm-hmm. and moving through others that that holds me right on the days when I'm like, I don't know if any of this is legit when I'm feeling less passionate and preachy uh, that holds me. Cause I'm mm-hmm. like, well, but no, there was this moment. There was this person, there was this time where, you know, this stranger showed up and did this thing and they had no way of knowing Mm -hmm. that that's exactly what needed to happen. And so that holds me. And then also I, there's something about the image of the divine as being one who draws close and draws close and draws close. And when everything falls apart says, all right, I'm going through the worst of it and to the worst of it with you that I, I'm still willing to risk everything on. Yeah. If there's a, if there's a story to be wrong about, that's the one that I'm willing to be like, Oh, well, I got that wrong. Well, that one wrong. Right. Cause it's, <laughs> yeah. cause it's beautiful. And even on the yeah. days when I'm not sure if it's true, I want it to be. And yeah. I think that it, if that's the kind of God that we're all trying to bear the image of to one another, it would be a hell of a lot more beautiful world to live in. Mm, yeah. I like how you said that too. You know, even if I'm wrong, I'm willing to bet on, on that kind you know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to be wrong if, if yeah. for something so beautiful as that. Um, and I, I don't, you know, for a people, and I'm saying we, because that's my mm-hmm. history as well, but who are so versed in the, in the Bible, it's just startling to me that, especially the gospels, that we could get anything other than yeah. uh, from it than what you just described. This God who became human, emptying God self of all, divinity to be fully fully totally human um somehow we've 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 traded that in for a robot jesus you know who knew everybody's yeah. reactions and who was just you know going through the the motions of being human but wasn't really human and, and of course 
this is a dualism that the early church fought for 500 years to, you know, right. against, but, but here we are believing it again. Um, and, but anyway, I love, I love the picture and the passion that you, that you speak to, um, as it relates to what you believe in. It's, it's compelling. Um, and I just have a, gosh, we're already running out of time, but <laughs> I have a couple more questions. You wrote, yeah. I think it's again, still in the first chapter, but I mean, so I'm quoting you here. I'm coming to understand salvation as a people to which I belong and a practice to which I submit. I underline that. Say more about that because that's very different than a personal salvation um, statement. There's a lot in that yeah. sentence. Do you yeah. remember writing that? First of all, I mean, so, you know, sometimes people say, "Oh, I you do. wrote this." And I'm yes, like, yes, yes. I don't even remember. Okay, good. Well, because that's that's a good. One. <laughs> I do remember that one. Thank <laughs> yeah, you, thank yeah. you. I do remember writing that one. There's a few in the book where I'm like, "Oh, you know, are you writing it?" And you're like, "Dang, that's good." Yeah. Um, so I do remember that one. So first of all, to to the people to whom I belong salvation and and being the people of god again kind of like what we were just talking about it's it's such a a weighty matter it's kind of ridiculous to expect somebody to hold on to that well entirely on their own all the time yeah you know it's a story that is risky it's a it's a path of life that is counter to everything and so it's, it's almost foolish to be like, here, go do that on your own. Uh, because we wouldn't do that with any other sort of pathway that is challenging, right? I think about like recovery movements and in the pursuit of sobriety, people don't say, okay, cool, sit in your room and say out loud, hi, I'm an alcoholic, mm -hmm. and then just work really hard not to drink on your own. Like that would never work. That's, right. <laughs> that's not how that works. So we don't expect people in any other sort of, uh, you know, repentant in the, in the truest sense of the word, right? Like turning around, returning to a path. Uh, we don't expect anybody in any sort of movement like that to just do it on their own, but we do in, in the church. And that I think is to our detriment. So I, was able to kind of keep moving and keep reconstructing, reconstructing and kind of tear things apart and put things back together at the same time, in part because I was surrounded by a community, uh, both the, the church community I was in at the time and also uh, yeah, I went to seminary partway through, so I had community there. I think that's one of the things that becomes the most painful for people when they do start asking these questions is their community stops being a place where they are safe. Right. And if we had communities that were okay with the grappling and not just okay with it, but encouraged it and welcomed it and said, yeah, let like we gather because we can't all hold on to this story at the same time. We gather because I need somebody to hold my faith for me, as the, the church mothers on my block will say, right? Like, I need someone to believe this when I can't. Um, we need each other. Um, and, and I think that 
we are becoming increasingly more aware of that as we can't be physically proximate to each other and we haven't been able to for forever right. you know that it's like oh there's really something to having people around you who are doing something with you yeah and and not just in the here and now but also i think like the great cloud of witnesses uh that is talked about in the book of hebrews especially has become such a, a thing for me in the past two or three years of, I don't always have to know exactly what I need to do or what this looks like or how to approach my faith in the world because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of years of people who have done this before me. And so I can look to their witness and I can you know, say like, ah, like Holy Spirit, like help. And, and what, what were you guiding, you know, what were you guiding Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to do in these moments? Mm -hmm. And, and to kind of have that kind of theology of a great cloud of witnesses of people who went on before of people who have borne witness in times past, you know, also leaves me with it feels like more legs to stand on in moments where I feel like I've lost track of what should be happening or what I'm being invited to do. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the first piece, uh, people to whom I belong. And then uh, a practice to which I submit, uh, you cannot have beautiful beliefs just in your brain and not do something with them in your body. Yeah. That, it, that ceases to be beautiful. And so I think there is this huge disconnect that so many, particularly white Christians in the United States have. And this isn't just evangelicals. I feel like I have seen this in mainline churches too, of having right beliefs or seeking right beliefs and not pursuing practices or behaviors or ways of embodying those beliefs at the same time. Yeah that it's fine that we just think good thoughts or we know the right answers or we have the correct political opinions, but it doesn't matter if that actually affects my embodied life with my neighbor. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's bullshit. Yeah. And, you know, that's how we continue to have so many problems and, and so many people with beautiful words, just beautiful words. And their neighbors would have no idea. Mm -hmm. And so it is a practice that I submit to because it faith requires that we do something. You know, the book of James, like faith without deeds is dead. Uh, and I think that, that that's super important to hold on to. That it's like, I cannot just believe my way into a different reality, into the kingdom of God, right? Uh, I have to live into it. It has to affect my my life and my my body and the way that I am with my neighbor and with my enemy. Yeah. Well, I mean, so well said, and and I, I will say, easier said than done as well. Oh my gosh! Yeah. <laughs> and I know you. I know you're saying that too. I mean, I totally know you're saying that too. Um, and I think. I was yesterday I was having a conversation with someone from our church and she said 
gosh, it's so, you know, I live here in Minneapolis and so we're, mm-hmm. we're really, we all are of course, but, um, this woman lives in North Minneapolis and she was at a neighborhood gathering of people that are really trying to affect real change in their yeah. little neighborhood, right? Because yeah. there's been, um, there's just a certain section that is getting more dangerous than it used to be. Yeah. And what my friend was saying, and she's in her sixties. I love her. She was like, I'm so tired of the national and global conversation actually that's on social media all the time. I'm, but I went to this gathering and it was real people being Mm -hmm. honest about real problems, but also they were there because they were committed to, because they lived there and they were committed to working with each other, black and white, um, to make their neighborhood a safer place for their kids to grow up in. And she said that gave me so much hope, you know? Mm -hmm. And so all that to say, like, that's, that's what you just said, I think fleshed out. There's a secrecy to that. Mm -hmm. Like no one's ever going to know necessarily that, you know, unless you put that on your Instagram, (laughs) you know, like, Oh my gosh, I was, I had such, and, and that's fine. (laughs) Like I do that. We all do that. That's totally fine. It's both. And it's not either or. And right. I think there's a beautiful simplicity and secrecy to really doing that kind of work that's embodied mm-hmm. in your neighborhood, in your um, house, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That no one will ever know about, but that that brings the kingdom in ways that a, a belief that you chant over and over again just simply won't. So, mm-hmm. okay, Megan, we are out of time. I, I want to ask you though, so this beautiful book, Born Again and Again, how can people, of course, people can go out and buy it wherever you uh, buy books. Uh, are there other ways to get a hold of you, your message, um, or the things you would want people to know as they buy your book and begin to digest it? Yeah. So people can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at mwestra, M-K-E. And I am pretty active on Twitter. Um, that tends to be a whole gamut of takes, not just theological ones. Yep. Um, and then they can check out my website, which is meganwestra.com. Um, there's a link there to get my book, but there's also a link there to subscribe to my podcast, uh, which is called The Podluck. The Podluck. So, the Podluck. And so I have people on to share little snippets of their theology. So just imagine like a, a church potluck yep. um, where you kind of are like, oh, I wonder, wonder what we're going to find today. Um, but that in like a podcast form. Yep. Um, so that's, that's where people can find me and connect with my work. Sweet. Well, I will put all those on the show notes or even just write in the episode notes. So if you're listening to this on Stitcher or iTunes or Podbean or Spotify, wherever you can just find Megan's info about where to follow her and her her website, Twitter, all that stuff right there in the episode notes or the show notes on my website. So uh, thank you, Megan. This was so good. It was hopeful for me. Um, I mean, I have been asking some of these questions for a long time. And um, so it's, it's, it's hopeful and helpful to get your perspective, your passion. And um, I have enjoyed your book and I hope lots and lots of people read it. Thanks, Steve. 
Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook, uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.